Welcome to the Primordial Soup Pop. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in the world of ecology, natural history, and evolution. Absolutely. And this week, we decide to discuss college mascots. Yes. Which, I gotta say, I was very disappointed on the whole by most college mascots. I found some cool ones, I'm not gonna lie. But on the whole, there are way too many tigers, man. Just way too many. It's tigers, it's bulldogs, it's some sort of warrior. You know, if I had a nickel for every Spartan that I saw out there, I'd have a sizable chunk of change. Yep, yep. Eagles, uh, a lot of lions too, wildcats. I'm betting they just pass them around school to school. That's why you get something easy. Maybe there's like a, a company that manufactures the costumes and they just got maybe like an eagle blueprint they can just use, a base design. Yeah, they just offer like the state college system like a discount if they buy like three mascots. They all have the same mascots and somebody saves money somewhere at the expense of actually having cool, unique mascots. It is also worth noting that the college Aaron and I went to, our mascot was the Seahawks, which is kind of cool, but also isn't exactly the most unique mascot. There are a lot of hawks. From a distance, you could not tell what it is. It could have been an eagle. It was a white bird. That's all it was. It could have been anything. True. Well, so honestly, I think that they should have caught the our mascot should have been the osprey. The graphic does look like an osprey. And when they're talking about a seahawk, they're talking. That's what they're talking about. And ospreys are really cool. And not a lot of people know about them. So that would have been a, a more unique mascot. But. We're the Seahawks. It is what it is. You know? Yeah, I will say shout out to Maryland. Uh, I really like the mascot. Terrapin, it's a cool animal. It's unique to the area. And no one else is using it, so why not? It has cultural significance to the state of Maryland. Yes, checks all the boxes. Round of applause for University of Maryland College Park. Good choice. I like it. But that being said... I am not going to be talking about a good mascot. Oh, you're you're not? I'm going to be talking about a mascot that is good on paper, but falls short in execution. Okay. What, if they not have the budget to bring it to life? All right, Rustin, I need you to Google this. Just, you have to see the photo first. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to be talking about the evergreen gooey ducks. I almost picked that mascot, actually. Yes, I knew there's a high chance we we saw each other's picks. I'm pretty sure you saw my pick too. I, I think I know what your pick is. Do don't, you? Don't don't spoil it yet. All right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we probably ran into the same compilations online when we were doing research for this episode. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. So, <laughs> depending on the year you're looking at this mascot, because it had many over the years. The appearance ranges from a pale Muppet wrapped in a cannoli to a sentient Christmas dildo wedged in a cinnamon bun to kind of a mime just wearing a puffer vest. And that's Speedy the Gooey Duck. It's pronounced Gooey Duck, but it's spelled Geoduck. And it's actually a type of clam. From when I was looking into that mascot, apparently, yeah, there's there's no faster way to, to tell someone that you're not from the Pacific Northwest than by pronouncing it Geoduck. As Rustin knows, 
Speedy regularly ranks as the worst slash weirdest college mascot, according to Time, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, Fox Sports, and many, many others. Of course. Well, they named the mascot Speedy. There's nothing speedy about a clam. I'm sorry. Clams live to be like 100 and they grow like six inches. They're just not fast. (laughs) So... Evergreen College is a small liberal arts college located in California, and the school tries to differentiate itself from the traditional college experience, hence why they picked this (laughs) stupid-ass mascot. (laughs) Look up a photo, please. Look up some of the older photos. Some of the older photos is just like a guy in a paper bag. They kind of crinkle it along the side of him, and they paint his face white. Now, the school claims they chose the mascot for a multitude of reasons. The importance to the local environment, its accessibility to those who are willing to dig for it, and their commitment to environmental practices. They claim that Speedy represents the school through its versatility, non-aggression, and permeance. And like I said, I got mixed opinions about the mascot. Besides, it just looks like horseshit. (laughs) I do respect the originality. I'm, I'm for that, you know? They could have just gone with the eagle or the tiger, or I'm sure there's a pelican that's probably picked already, but they decided to go with a gooey duck. I looked up older versions of this mascot. It looks like an albino version of Kermit the Frog skinned his green skinned cousin and wore his skin as a vest. The chief trying to execute it better, and it's just not good any time. I, I look through like a catalog of them all on their website, and one of them is just a guy wearing a duck mask with like a vest on, I think. I will say that uh, the newer versions of this mascot are significantly better. Significantly. Yeah, because they weren't made in someone's dorm room. Probably. But like the, the most recent versions of this mascot, it's shiny. It's br- sure it's bright green. I get it, it's Evergreen State, but whatever. My only problem is that there's nothing on the dude's arms. Like, he's just got arms sticking out of the side of his clamshell. It's really awkward looking. (laughs) Would you rather him just hop around with no armholes? Yes. Yes, I would, actually. Personally, I think they should just have a physical clam to be the mascot, and they can tote it around in a water cooler or something. Yeah, that would actually be really funny. I'd get behind that. Even though Speedy the Gooey Duck may be an idea that works best on paper, I'm going to try my best to defend it, or at least educate about the importance of the Gooey Ducks. All right, let's hear it. So, Gooey Ducks are a species of large saltwater clam found in the Pacific Ocean, as we already mentioned. I'll say again, it is spelled Geoduck, but it's pronounced as Gooey Duck. And I know at one point in this podcast, I'm going to call them geoducks by accident. It will happen. It's thought that the common name of the clam is from a Native American word for digging deep. I didn't get that word, but that's your bit of trivia. And (laughs) this is the good part. Its scientific name is Panopia Generosa, which roughly translates the generous husband. (laughs) Wait, why? I think it's due to the fact that Gooey Duck strongly resembles a massive uncircumcised penis. (laughs) It's absolutely uncanny. 
Even the taxonomist couldn't deny it. If you go through the Wikipedia page and you go down to additional facts right below the college mascot, it just says it resembles a penis. That's not really a fun fact. I think that's the definition of a fun fact. I mean, that's a fact. And it's fun. Well, it checks all the bases, I guess. Or yeah. I guess it's not really a bit of trivia. No, no, it's it's not trivia. It's like you go on like a uh, page for some historical person and you look at the trivia at the bottom. It doesn't just say this man was very ugly, you know, <laughs> so it's not really a trivia. I can just look at the photo and I can pick that bit up. Yeah, yeah. It, it was kind of obvious from the beginning, but. So these guys are found along the Pacific coast from Alaska to California. They can get six to eight inches long in shell length, but are capable of extending a massive fleshy siphon up to about three feet or one meter in length. Basically, it looks like a horse penis being cradled in a tiny taco shell. So we're talking like magnum size here. Beyond magnum. Trojan can't hold this back. These are the largest brewing clams. They can get about a pound in size, but there's some unconfirmed rumors of them getting up to 15 pounds. But I'd say pound is safe average. And that may seem far-fetched, but these guys can live up to 140 years. They're filter feeders with very slow metabolisms. So I'm certain if you were to go back in time about 300 years ago, the average gooey duck would be much larger in size today simply because it takes a long time for them to grow. Same thing for oysters in the Chesapeake Bay. I'll be doing a lot of comparisons to them. Oysters historically were also much larger than they are nowadays because they weren't disturbed and they could just keep growing. Very true. That's the case with a lot of a lot of commonly harvested aquatic organisms, actually. Even a lot of fish species, especially. Yeah, that's kind of true for everything across the board. Yeah. I mean, elephant tusks, similar kind of concept. You know, they were heavily selected against having longer tusks. Mm-hmm. We would go out and we'd pull them out of the mud and eat them. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what we did with them. <laughs> Same thing. So once the gooey ducks burrow, they never really move. In fact, the foot, they don't have an actual foot, that's what you call the fleshy bit of a clam, is more or less vestigial in these guys. If you pull them out of the sediment, they cannot burrow themselves back in that's it they're done so would they just die at that point or can they keep living on the surface or like on the the ocean floor i think could keep living but they're just extremely prone to predators at that point and their survival is basically based on just being burrowed got it they only retract their siphon that's pretty much all the movement they do if a predator is about if you spot one of these it kind of just looks like two little nostrils sticking out of the sand. Most of the animals deep under the mud or sand. It looks like two small PVC pipes next to each other. So in terms of predators, these guys really don't have that many, which may come as a surprise to you because they can't move. Definitely. And so their predation rates are extremely high when they're young, but pretty much all bivalves are like that because they just broadcast spawn. When they reproduce, they just spew out planktonic larvae so tiny tiny into the water it's basically like throwing a million darts at a board and hoping one sticks right the shotgun approach to reproduction but as they get older the rate of predation goes down significantly once they get a good spot and they're established they're kind of fine and that's where they can live up to 140 plus years 
I was just about to say, it's kind of weird, though. Like, you'd think that something would have evolved to be able to dig for, you know, these highly edible, pretty sizable clams, right? That's a really excellent food source if you can just dig into the sediment a little bit, right? Oh, they do have predators. So there's certain snails, sea stars, and crabs that have been known to eat smaller ones. And for the adults, larger fish like dogfish and flounders are known to occasionally eat the tips of the siphon. But they don't necessarily get the whole clam. They just get, you know, a little bit off the top. And I'm presuming the clam can survive this. But there is evidence of otters digging them up and eating them. But of course, what the gooey ducks are most famous for, and their number one predator, is... Humans. Oh yeah, absolutely. What they're most famous for is their cuisine. So, while some clam can be described as chewy and bland... Gooey ducks are described as savory, crunchy, and sometimes a bit of nutty flavor. Don't take my word for it. This is this is what I read. I looked at several several recipes, actually. Okay, I have a couple questions. One, crunchy? I guess it depends on how you cook it. Right, but I mean, I'm just thinking about oysters. If you cook an oyster correctly, it's crunchy. But the oyster, it's, that's not because of the oyster itself. That's right, like you said, because of the way you cook it. So I think with the gooey ducks is if you get a couple clams, you can think, oh, you know, you make a chowder with it. But with the gooey ducks, the clam is the meal itself. That's the focal point. So there's a lot more you can do with it also because it's huge. You know, you don't want to chop it up and throw it in a soup. You kind of waste it. I found recipes for gooey duck fondue sauteed in soups, chowders, stews, salad, and even served raw as sashimi. It actually seems to be one of the more popular options, actually. Follow-up question. Is this the first time you've ever done recipe research for this podcast? Nope. Eel episode, remember? <laughs> the good old oh, jelly that's, eels. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Okay. Touche. You got me there. And these are eaten all over the world. The Pacific gooey duck, of course, is only found in the Pacific and Alaska down to California, maybe a bit in the Mexico. But there's similar species found in Japan, New Zealand, Argentina, China, and other countries. And depending on the species, they can go for up to $15 to $30 a pound. It's actually not that popular in the United States. Most of the focus is from Asia, China particularly. And I think like 95% of the market is based in China. That's where sales go. Got it. Not really that popular over here. At least maybe, I'm sure it is locally, but it definitely has not made its way over to the East Coast as far as I know. I guess Americans just aren't comfortable eating something that looks that overtly phallic. Why, we eat hot dogs. Okay, but there's no ball sack on a hot dog. <laughs> I don't know what hot dogs you're eating. No, there's, there's no ball sack. <laughs> There's no ball sack on a gooey duck either. That's what the clamshell is. Yeah, he's got some shrinkage. First law of alchemy, one thing gives, the other takes away. He's sacrificing the sack for length. Hey, man, it's cold in the Pacific Northwest. What do you want from him? All right, so, Rustin, tell me what happens when we have a slow-growing, easy-to-harvest animal that becomes a popular delicacy. Oh, it gets eliminated like like that. Absolutely. So this may or may not be the case for the gooey ducks. So I already mentioned in the Chesapeake Bay, we have the oysters. 
And in the bay, at one point, there were so many oysters that in pre-colonial times, early European explorers claimed that the water had visibility of 20 to 30 feet, which is a far cry from what it is today. There were these massive reefs of oysters that could just wreck ships as they got too close. Yes. And since oysters have been harvested so much since then, their population is just a fraction of what it once was. Correct. Correct. It's not fully known for sure if this is happening to the gooey ducks. What do you mean? So it's difficult to determine. Because they're all buried? That's a big part of it. They don't build reefs like a lot of other bivalves do, so we can't physically see them. And because they prefer certain sediments, they can have very sporadic distribution, where in some areas you can find them in densities of about one per squared meter. And then in others, you could just go for huge stretches and not see any of them. We do know that they can be very vulnerable to overharvesting. So in some areas like the Moro Bay, their population was reduced so much that you can no longer harvest them at all in these areas. Overall, there's just not enough information to make a decision. In fact, I believe they're currently not even evaluated under IUCN or sites. So we don't even have a standpoint for them. So we could have totally just decimated gooey duck populations without knowing it. It's quite possible. And gooey ducks are still harvested today. Right. That's kind of frightening, though, honestly. Uh, it is frightening. I read a report from the California government on the status of the gooey ducks. A lot of it was speculation because they didn't know exactly for the gooey ducks. They had to say what threatened similar species and say this likely applies. So it is likely they're threatened by climate change, as pretty much everything is. In particular, ocean acidification. Yep, that's a big one. So that's when the pH of the ocean decreases, and that makes it harder for bivalves, so clams, oysters, mussels, things with the shells, to form their calcium carbonate shells. This hasn't been studied in them specifically, but this is pretty much true across the board for all bivalves. Increasing temperatures can also be a big one for them, and it's been shown for a lot of marine life that this causes them to migrate to colder depths, or if they stay in the warmer water, it can stress their immune system and make them more susceptible to disease. At a certain point, Evergreen College might not even be prime gooey duck territory. I guess not. That's why they got to start. They got to take one now and keep it in the water cooler. It can live up to 150 years. Get a young one now and just invest in keeping that one alive. Speedy's making his way north much more quickly than anticipated. It's also a bit of a mystery what role they play in ecosystems. In general, filter feeders are often very important. Many bivalves play important roles in nutrient cycling, habitat maintenance, or removal of nutrients and sediment from the water columns. But the geo that's I was calling the geoducks. There it is. There it is. But the gooey ducks haven't been properly studied. Lastly, I want to end with the current state of gooey duck aquaculture. Oh, interesting. What's that like? I already mentioned that they were popular food items and how overharvesting can be very problematic to certain populations. It should come as no surprise that they are farmed. No, not at all. This started back in the 1970s, primarily in British Columbia and Washington State. And this is done typically by leasing out tidal flatlands. And you just sort of plant the juvenile gooey ducks into the mud. And you either protect them with a netting or you do some sort of elaborate PVC pipe setup. Basically, you just set them out there and protect 
them from anything getting in. So, more or less the way you defend a koi pond from herons. Exactly, yep. Just covered in fishing line. (laughs) And honestly, this practice actually seems pretty sustainable for the most part. Really? Yeah, I did a whole deep dive on this specifically. So the industry breeds its own gooey ducks. Not to mention, when you only have two to breed, they can produce millions of larvae with just a couple adults. True. And if you're keeping them in captivity where there's no predation, that gives you a massive yield of clams. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So not only you just need a couple initially to start up a whole farm, these guys are still able to filter water in these environments because they're kept outside. So they're still performing the same role in the ecosystem as filter feeders. So if you think about it, for most animals that we farm, we have to feed them food. We have to give it to them. And if they're in an environment, that food could run off and cause issues in local ecosystems. It's the exact opposite with the gooey ducks. You don't have to feed them at all. With that in mind, it's it's kind of interesting that like large-scale oyster farming never really happened in the Chesapeake. It is odd, isn't it? I know there's like some small efforts, but yeah, you would think that's taken off everywhere. I guess the key difference is with the gooey ducks... I mean, one gooey duck can be like a solid meal, but with oysters, you need a couple. And the gooey ducks, you just dig them up when they're ready. Right, right. It's kind of of like a giant uh, oceanic meat carrot. (laughs) It's the best way to put it. The the evergreen meat carrots. (laughs) A a rebrand is coming, I feel. So while there's some risk of spread of disease, sediment disruption, and a possibility of wildlife being trapped in the nets, overall, this practice really isn't that bad. Seafood Watch rates it at about a 6 out of 10, which for seafood, that's pretty good for Seafood Watch. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're pretty strict about that stuff. They're very strict about this stuff. There is a small risk in the fact that these are filter feeders, meaning if there's ever a toxic outbreak, these tend to accumulate in the animals that are feeding from the water column. So think of like a uh, red algae bloom, something like that. They could accumulate in these. Right. In fact, China, who is the number one importer of gooey ducks, actually banned all shellfish from the U.S. for a little bit. Really? Why? Yeah, it only lasted about six months. There's just one particularly bad outbreak. Oh, uh, okay. Are they vulnerable to things like, say, I don't know, like an oil spill off the coast or something like that? I mean, I can't imagine it's good for them. Like I said, they're just, they're constantly taking in water. Whereas, you know, a fish, it it's not, it doesn't eat that way. It doesn't have to pump water through itself constantly. I don't know the exact amount of water they can filter a day, but they're taking all that in. So, you know, maybe it's just a once in a while kind of thing. Maybe it's a specialty dish, but from all I can tell, the aquaculture portion of the gooey duck seems pretty good. That's really cool. Good for them. Yeah, they've they got it going. And it's not a huge industry, but it's it's got growth. It's got potential. And uh, it's got to taste somewhat good. Otherwise, everyone wouldn't be eating it. Oh, I I wouldn't say that. Uh, you know what? If that, was, if that was the case, then Arby's would no longer be in business. Dude, they're not that bad. Are they, though? I got a euro from there once, and I was like, yeah, it's passable. 
All right, but without going into details, your cooking standards aren't exactly high, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give you that. Another thing is uh, gooey ducks are an aphrodisiac, so maybe that's what the market's for. Well, I mean, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know how it couldn't be. <laughs> you, you can't look like that and not be an aphrodisiac. Even even if there's no biological basis behind that, even if it's just all there never is. There never is. <laughs> what if all what if that entire study is just like it's just one giant placebo effect where people think they're being aroused by the shape of the gooey duck more than anything else? Gets them all hot and bothered. Yeah, exactly. With that being said, that is my bet on the gooey ducks. Alright. Awesome. That that was really cool. That was it's interesting to hear about major shellfish farming operations beyond the Chesapeake Bay, because the big one around here, of course, is the oysters, which of huge importance to this area, not only because people love eating oysters, but also because of the importance they have to the bay. Anyway, not going to lie. Like I said before, I did think about talking about the gooey ducks, but I eventually decided to go with a different mascot that you are probably also aware of. And this was because when you think about college mascots, there's one group of animals that is pretty severely underrated. You know, the invertebrates. Most college mascots are vertebrates. I can see the smile on your face. I think you know where I'm going with this. I think I know what it is. I think I know. So I I think we've talked about how like 10 different animals probably account for like 80% of all college mascots or something like that. That's not a research statistic. That's just my best guess. Y'all get what I'm saying. And that's kind of sad. You know, the lack of creativity. However, there is one college that not only picked an invertebrate, but one that had an, actually had a very negative impact on the area in which the college is situated. That animal is the bull weevil. Oh, okay. And the college is the University of Arkansas at Monticello. I did see this one. I considered it for a bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I went with this one because there's a whole lot about the bull weevils that is really, really cool. Yeah, and there's just not many invertebrates. I can only think of two others. Well, like the yellow jackets and... Okay, I can think of three. <laughs> <laughs> I know, what is it? Richmond has the spiders. Oh, yep, yep, that's true. And uh, the banana slugs, right? Yes, that was another one I almost did. Yeah, I thought about doing that too. I thought about it, but then the mascot like actually looked passable look more like a weird teletubby than a slug and then i saw the gooey ducks i'm like okay i gotta go with this yeah the the uc santa barbara mascot kind of looks like yellow shrek <laughs> that's exactly yes that's it it's kind of funny but yeah like you said passable and also the banana slugs that's pretty cool you can't really give them any shit for that anyway university of arkansas at monticello for the record no thomas jefferson's house is not in arkansas it's in virginia for some reason, this one part of Arkansas loves naming stuff after other parts of the country. The neighboring town right next to Monticello, Arkansas is called Tennessee, Arkansas. I guess they just weren't in a very inventive mood when they were naming towns. You know, what? if you're a small town, name it whatever the hell you want. It's not going to be important. I mean, it could be if it becomes a big town. Right? Or what are the odds of that? Not every town can yeah, be a but, big town. But every Call big town was once a small town. You can know. You can know. You can look at strategic locations and go, that'll be a big hub one day. If I was the governor of Nebraska, 
I would be changing names left and right, and no one would care. It wouldn't even make the news. Okay, okay, sure. Even all the largest cities started with some guy just, like, coming up and being like, I want to live here, and then everyone else decided to join him for one reason or another. So, back to the boll weevils, though. So the boll weevil, or Anthonymus grandis, I decided to actually include the scientific name this time, like you usually do. I gotta say, is an oddly impressive-sounding scientific name for a tiny little beetle. It's roughly pea size, the sizable proboscis, and is originally actually native to Mexico, not to the southern United States, where its impact is most well-known. In the spring, the adults come out of hibernation, mate, and then look for a suitable place for their eggs. This place is typically the pod or bud of certain kinds of flowering plants. The young, once hatched, will use the contents of the bud as sustenance until it flowers, at which point they escape, mature into adults, and then repeat the whole cycle. This cycle occurs several times in one summer, and totally f***s up the breeding cycle of the plant, which, you know, relies upon those flowers for their own reproduction. This is a really important fact to remember when you consider that humans sometimes collect the flowers of plants as valuable and economically vital crops. And as it turned out, boll weevils just loved cotton plants. As most Americans and a lot of other people around the world will know, cotton has been a huge cash crop in the American South for centuries now. From the era of slavery, through Jim Crow and sharecropping, and to the present day. Even right now, America produces about 20 million bales of cotton annually, with a value of $7 billion. Even when there is a lot of other economic focus in the South, cotton production today is still huge. All of this is just to make the point that cotton is arguably the single most important crop ever produced in the American South. When the boll weevils crossed the Mexican border in the late 1800s, it was kind of like the fourth horseman of the apocalypse for cotton farmers. Boll weevil infestations could cause crop losses of 67%, making a once profitable crop quite the opposite. It became hugely detrimental to grow cotton because of the impact of the boll weevils. In Georgia alone, boll weevil infestations caused such a decline in the cotton industry that by 1983, only 115,000 acres of farmland were dedicated to farming cotton. This might sound like a lot, but not when you consider that in 1915, the year the boll weevil was first found in Georgia, there were 5.2 million acres of cotton farmland in the state. That's a major downgrade and also answers my question. I was going to ask when they came over. Yep, they came over kind of like late 1800s, early 1900s. It depends on the state. I was going to ask if they were the Union's secret weapon. (laughs) No, 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 no. They came after that. Single-handedly destroyed the Confederacy's economy. (laughs) Interesting and most definitely false conspiracy theory. But no, this came 30, 40 years after the Civil War. Anyway, the weevils totally decimated the economies of the rural South, so much so that this one tiny beetle has been credited as a major cause of the Great Migration, which is the phenomenon where millions of African Americans moved north from southern farms to major cities like New York, Detroit, and Baltimore, among others, just because their entire livelihood was completely wiped out by these boll weevils. They, they couldn't live as, as farmers anymore. It was just impossible. And so they had no other choice but to move north and search for jobs in northern cities. There were other causes of that, but 
the boll weevils have been credited as a major one. In 1903, the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture called the arrival of this pest, quote, a wave of evil. Or a weevil, if you will. <laughs> he got booed. He definitely got booed. <laughs> he probably got beat up. There's people with starving families just in there so pissed as they're hearing this speech. I don't know if that was originally his intention. I think he was being perfectly serious, but that just lines up so perfectly that I couldn't help myself. As a result, a huge amount of effort had to be put into eradicating the boll weevil, and it took a crazy amount of resources to actually get it done. Initially, these efforts to control the weevils simply involved spraying crops with copious amounts of pesticides. In this era, our environmental understanding was nowhere near the same level as it is today, so this effort was not only less effective, but also hazardous from many different perspectives. Whether you consider ecologically or economically, it wasn't cost-effective, or most importantly, to the public health. A lot of these chemicals were seriously harmful to humans. Eventually, though, there were two main breakthroughs which proved to be very effective in controlling the weevils. The first was an understanding of how the weevils use pheromones. Pheromones, as most people know, are chemicals that attract members of the opposite sex. Usually they're emitted by females to let males know that they're ready to mate. And weevils, like a lot of other organisms, use them to time up breeding seasons. In weevils, though, male weevils will release a certain chemical when they've found food. And this chemical is then designed to attract the females, which is generally the reverse. Usually it's the females who release the chemicals, as I just said. However, this chemical also attracts other male weevils in addition to the females because the male weevils will smell this and know that another male has found food and that there will probably also be female weevils in that area. So they're just kind of hijacking the whole operation. Yeah, a bunch of scabs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Union's got to do something about that. They're threatening the whole strike. But anyway, the effect of this is that it, it eventually just snowballs until eventually there's this full-on weevil orgy going on. And so in the 1960s, scientists managed to create synthetic versions of these pheromones, which would attract the weevils, meaning that you could not only trap and kill them, but you could also monitor infestations to manage how much pesticide was being applied. So... You could set up one of these traps on your farm, and if you had a lot of weevils coming in, you would know, okay, I got a problem here. I got to really ramp up the pesticide use. Or if you didn't have as many weevils that were coming in, if any, you could kind of lay back and save some money. And that was a really useful tool. The second method was a more selective application of pesticides, especially one pesticide called malathion. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Remember how I said that many weevil generations can occur between spring and fall? Well, it was discovered that by spraying late in the fall and destroying any unharvested remnants of the cotton crops, they could decimate the number of weevils that were going into hibernation and thus the number of overwintering weevils, which would mean that once the spring came, it also limited the number of weevils which were available to start the first generation in the next season. So, Basically, the end of the fall was like this choke point where if you could really hammer on the pesticides and limit the number of weevils that were hibernating, you could limit the start of the next generation and really cut off the population through time, through successive years. Combined, these efforts proved very effective, as today the boll weevil has been largely eradicated. 
Except in that one college of, what was it, Arkansas? Yes, except for the University of Arkansas at Monticello. So, oddly enough, there are actually some places that revere the boll weevil, which seems kind of odd, right? This little pest once posed a major threat to their entire economy. In Alabama in particular, there's one place specifically the town of Enterprise, Alabama, which, believe it or not, actually has a statue honoring the boll weevil in the middle of their town. Are they really big fans of polyester? No, no, but you're actually not too far off there. Because it turns out that in this particular town, and across Alabama in parts, the boll weevil turned out to be a blessing in disguise, really. As farmers in this town of Enterprise were having their crops wiped out by the weevils, many shifted to other crops the big one being peanuts, which turned out to be hugely profitable, not only because peanuts are delicious and improve soil quality as legumes, but also because peanuts were completely unaffected by the weevils. The profits from peanut farming were enough for the farmers to pay off debts from the damage the weevils had done, and thus cotton country became peanut country, which was hugely beneficial for the whole area. Yes, so there's a silver lining to everything, but I don't know if I'd go ahead and make a statue for the guy. Yeah, but I mean... Without the weevils, they never would have started farming peanuts. And the peanuts turned out to be a, a really good thing for this area, as it turns out. So they kind of like the weevils in a way, which seems counterintuitive. A wildfire could also achieve this. Like just a raging inferno could yield the same results. I wouldn't build a, a monument to that. Okay, first of all, there are several monuments to fire throughout the world. Second... If you had a fire come through an area, you would just rebuild and start doing the same things. The weevils did not have that effect. The weevils actually prevented them from doing the same things they'd always done and caused them to totally shift their farming practices. So, not like fire. All right, well, you just get one angry guy with a big lawnmower and he achieves <laughs> the same result. Or just a giant weed whacker going through the cotton farms. Kill Dozer too. He's heading down south. <laughs> He's got a taste for cornbread. Anyway, if there's one lesson to be learned from the story of the boll weevil, at least for me, it's that relying on just one crop and planting acres upon acres of it can be extremely risky. Focusing on just one crop can invite the parasites of that crop to flourish. The boll weevils would not have traveled as far or as quickly as they did if the South was not as reliant upon cotton because cotton farms would have been less densely populated giving the weevils fewer areas to propagate and breed. So essentially, the American South became like a boll weevil paradise because of monocropping. So if we had diversified our crop production and thrown in some peanuts a little earlier, you know, maybe some sorghum or some other crops, the boll weevils wouldn't have, the same, wouldn't have had the same kind of opportunity to travel and breed and propagate throughout the entire region. We wouldn't have the same kind of problem. This also speaks to the value of biodiversity, right? Not just in nature, although it is vital there too, but also in more anthropogenically influenced settings like agriculture. Those systems are stronger if they're more diverse because there isn't one singular weakness which could wreck the whole thing. The boll weevils almost singularly wrecked cotton production in the South. They wouldn't have done if the South wasn't as reliant on cotton. It's just cool that one single like species, one single event impacted history so much in ways that people wouldn't see i didn't know about any of this oh yeah i would have thought like oh you know it's bad for crops but i didn't consider like the historical ramifications of it oh yeah this is a a major part of american history 
that a lot of people don't know about, or it's not talked about a lot necessarily, at least not like in the middle Atlantic and Northeast where we grew up. I'm sure they know all about it in the South. I mean, it's a college mascot. It's not talked about throughout the rest of the country, even though it affected really the whole country because of the great migration that was caused by the boll weevils. Anyway, that pretty much ends my piece on the boll weevils, at least. I want to end this piece by talking about some other fantastic college mascots that I came across. <laughs> some honorable mentions. Exactly. Not necessarily interesting plants or animals, and definitely not enough for me to do a whole podcast segment on, but still hilarious stories. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Keggy the Keg. That one's self-explanatory. It is. But guess what college it's from? If I had to guess, I'd say it's a party school. It's from Dartmouth. That's their mascot? It's their unofficial mascot. Okay, unofficial. What's their official one? I, I, I don't know what their official mascot is. It's probably something boring. But the fact that an Ivy League school has a beer keg as one of their well-known mascots is insane to me. Says a lot about what your tuition's going to. Right. I know. Sure, it's not the officially sanctioned school mascot, but does that really matter that much? Honestly? It's the mascot of the people. Exactly. If that's what's showing up to the basketball games, that's the mascot. Right. It's the populist mascot. Next up, we have the Youngstown State Penguins. It's not really that interesting until you hear about how it came about. The school basketball team was playing a game in the 1920s in a very poorly ventilated gym. So their fans were very cold. The team was playing very poorly, which led the fans to say that their players were flapping around in the cold like a bunch of penguins. And that became the college's mascot. I thought you were just going to say there's a short guy on the team. Nope. The basketball players were just terrible. And so now their entire college is officially known as the Youngstown State Penguins. And lastly, we have Artie the Artichoke. I know this one. Scottsdale Community College. The student body at this college was angry that the school was, had been misappropriating funds, and evidently the people running the school thought that it would be a good idea to let these angry students pick their mascot, so the students picked the artichoke as a joke. Honestly, I think this says a lot about those students, that they didn't pick something a whole lot worse. Most people listening to this podcast have been to college. They generally know what that's like. Could have been way worse than an artichoke. If you want to know what I'm talking about, look up the Rhode Island School of Design. What's their mascot? That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to lead you down the rabbit hole, but I am going to show you the entrance. Anyway, that's the end of my piece. All right, well, yeah, really cool. I really like the bit about the bull weevils. The, the statue, is, is it a cool statue? Um, wait a minute. Is that the one that's dressed up like Ronald McDonald? The mascot or the statue? The statue. No. What town is it in? Enterprise, Alabama. That That's it. That's it. I've seen this. I've seen this before. There's a bull weevil Ronald McDonald. Okay, I totally missed this in my research. <laughs> Wait, I realized I'd seen this with no explanation. It came up in my Instagram feed. I didn't think Ronald McDonald could be any scarier. That is nightmarish. If they ever make an It Chapter 3, that's what he's got to look like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, I'd seen that before, and I just wondered, what the hell is that thing? No, I totally missed that in my research. <laughs> I feel so disappointed in myself right now. The statue I was looking at is actually fairly respectable. 
It's a nice marble statue of this woman holding up a bowl with a weevil in it. Oh, yeah, I see that one now. Like, that one looks respectable. Yeah, I, li- I like the McDonald's one better. <laughs> I don't. I wish they would not do that. That's frightening. I think you had a good idea. You talked about drugs derived from animals or drugs produced by various living things. Right. You want to do that? Yeah, yeah. I already got something cooking. Okay, yeah, I do too. That's why I suggested it. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like and follow on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at souppotpodcast. All right, sounds great. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Bye.